the third installment of Mission Log Live, back again on a Tuesday night to field your comments and questions about Star Trek Discovery. I'm John Champion. And I'm Ken Ray. This week, you and John and I will dig into episode four of Discovery, The Butcher's Knife Cares Not for the Lamb's Cry. We're doing this live uh, every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. Pacific, 10 p.m. Eastern for the duration of Discovery's run right here on Facebook Live and, of course, on YouTube as well. Why are we doing this live? Because we want to have this conversation with you. Now, if you want the audio-only version of this show, you can have just that. Uh, Search iTunes for Mission Log Live. You can also hit our website, missionlogpodcast.com, to hear just the audio And, of course, a visit to Facebook.com slash Mission Log Pod or our page on YouTube, which I believe is YouTube.com slash Roddenberry. Is that correct, John? Yes, that is correct. Uh, Roddenberry Prod. Roddenberry Prod. Roddenberry Prod. Yes. Mm -hmm. Buy the Roddenberry Prod in the Roddenberry store, by the way. Mm -hmm. It's it's the best prod there is. It really is. Uh, YouTube.com slash Roddenberry Prod. I will give you access to the video replays of every show that we've done so far. And then all the shows we're going to do once we do them. Yes. So thank you to everybody who is watching now. And thank you to those who are watching or listening after the live broadcast. You can do that at Facebook. You can do that in the Mission Log Live audio feed. Um, This show is truly all about you. It's all about your comments, your questions, your thoughts about discovery here as it happens in real time. So Ken and I will have our notes in just a second. And then we want to hear from you. So Ken, how exactly can we hear from them? Well, there are a few ways that people can do that. Uh, get in touch with us. That is, you can click the link in the comments, uh, which might be over there or over there. I can't see the screen right now, but click the link uh, in the comments to join the zoom video call. Uh, you can also just pick up the phone and call us three, two, three, five, two, two, five, six, four, one is the phone number to call three, two, three, five, two, two, five, six, four, one. And then you enter the conference number that you see on the screen uh, wherever that is on the screen. I do need to let you know that those links change from week to week. So don't lock everything in. The Zoom thing is, well, lock in facebook.com slash mission log pod. And that will always have the latest information on how you can get in touch with us. So a little bit later today, we are going to have your calls and questions. We should have a special guest from Women at Warp joining us as well. Uh, Sue Kissenweather was at New York Comic Con. Uh, she was there for the Discovery panel. Can't wait to hear her impressions of that. But Ken, as we do in the uh, Mission Log tradition, how about I give us a little, just a, a tiny recap of this episode? Okay, but just a tiny recap. Just a tiny recap. Well, it it already has the longest title so far. Is this longer than For the World is Hollow and I Have Touched the Sky? Uh, If you take out the coughing in For the World is Hollow and I Have Touched the Sky, then I think they're about even. Okay. All right. Good, good. Um, And and I like the order of this, too. The butcher's knife cares not for the lamb's cry. It's a little, maybe a little Yoda-like in its uh, syntax and its order. So um, I like that. All right. So what happened in this episode? Well, Michael Burnham, the mutineer, she's still on board as a non-ranked crew member of the Discovery. Captain Lorca introduces her to the hideously violent creature he had beamed over from the Glen. He's thinking it's powerful enough that they could weaponize it. It is wartime, after all, and they need every advantage they can get. The creature is sort of kind of like a giant tardigrade. It's a water bear of massive proportion. And like Lorca, it hates bright light. 
Commander Landry wants to just cut it open, but opening the cage has the results you would expect. Say goodbye to Landry. Burnham has it figured out, though. It attacks only when feeling threatened. Otherwise, it's just a big, playful thing, and it sure loves those spores that make the ship go. Maybe there's a connection. In another sector, Klingons are unleashing hell on a Federation mining outpost, always with the mining. With the spore drive, Discovery is the only ship that can make it to Corvin 2 to help those under attack. The first jump doesn't go well at all, but once the tardigrade is hooked up to the engineering equipment to commune with the spores, they are able to jump in, blow up some Klingons just in time, and get out. Also, the tardigrade really, really hates the whole process. Burnham gets it. It's just a big old scared puppy with razor-sharp claws and blast-resistant hide. But hey, they all saved the day, right? So, yay. A package came in for Burnham. Captain Giorgio's last will and testament. There are some parting words of encouragement for her former first officer and a gift, the telescope that sat in her ready room. Hey, uh, what have the other Klingons been up to this whole time? Well, Vok is still hung up on memories of Takuvma, and it looks like Lorel is a little hung up on Vok. They took the dilithium processor from the hobbled Shinzu, but Cole has shown up and sees the opportunity to take power for himself. And he does, and that leaves Vok stranded in the hull of the Shinzu. But who should show up to tell him it'll all be okay after a little Klingon retreat to get things back in order? Lorel. Ah, oh, I see good things for these two. The end. Wow. Everybody's like all turned on by the Klingon relationship, by the budding Klingon romance. Although I'm trying to figure out if there's actually going to be a romance there. A lot of people seem to think so. Uh, if you think so, if you'd like to talk about the love connection going on between Vok and Lorel, um, hit us up in Zoom or give us a call 323-522-5641. Um, you have some thoughts on the show, sir? Do you want to talk over other people's questions? What would you like to do next? It's funny. There was that very suggestive line. Uh, would you like to uncouple now uh, that uh, Lorel <laughs> posed to Vok? There's a little look. There's a wink and a nod, whatever is going on there. Okay. There is. That's true. But she also says in this episode that she is from a house of deceivers. Mm-hmm. She could just be play. She could so easily just be playing him to get what she actually wants, whatever she, that is. She could be playing the whole thing. We don't know. Yeah. 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 Did you want me to hit some of my questions or do you want to hit some of yours or do you want to hit other people's? I just, I, I've got a, a handful of notes that I'll share with you here. Um, I liked the opening that we got an inside look at a synthesizer, not a replicator, but a synthesizer. Mm-hmm. I thought it was cool. I thought it, at the very beginning where you don't know the scale of what you're looking at, I thought we were looking at the inside of the V'ger, uh sort of planet, V'ger <laughs> device, you know, that, that whole thing. Uh, it was nice. Um, we had a call on our first episode asking about the computer voice and why it wasn't Majel. And the more I listen to the computer voice in this show, I think it does sound kind of like a, it's a little Siri like, but it's a little bit to me like a cross between Siri and the city computer in Logan's Run. You know, the one that tells everybody they have to go to uh, Carousel. It, okay. Really, am I the only one here? Logan's Run. Okay, never mind. Um, the uh, the package from Giorgio, i uh, just like to point out, has a lot of Starfleet branding. In fact, there's a lot of branding everywhere. I'm not totally opposed to it. I get it. We all like our Starfleet branding. But more importantly, where did the telescope come from? 
Yeah, well, that's one of those things, isn't it? It is one of those things. It's one of those. Uh, that's a. That's. I'm guessing that's a plothole. Okay. Because they left the they left the discovery just sort of laying there. I don't think the Klingons like found her telescope and said, "Oh, we should put this in a package and send it to Burnham." Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think they did actually. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm a little no. little concerned about that. Um, the the other thing that I have is uh, let's see the oh the battle simulation at the beginning felt a little like the Kobayashi Maru. Not totally, but it reminded me of that. They were in sort of a no-win scenario with the attack of some Klingons, and Lorca's putting his uh, his crew through their paces. So I mm. thought that was kind of neat. Yeah. I thought, I thought you meant that it reminded you of that because we just didn't know what was happening. Because in Star Trek mm-hmm. Two, of course, when we when we see that battle happening, we think that the Enterprise is about to be destroyed. When they walk onto the bridge, we think that they're in the middle of a battle. Yep. Um, it seemed even Burnham was a tiny bit confused by that, although I don't know why she would be. That might just be for our benefit. Right. See, there's a lot of stuff. Well, there's a lot of stuff that's going on on screen that I can't tell if it's written for us or if it's written for like the characters. Right. Like mm-hmm. Burnham's confusion right there. Would she have actually been confused by that or would she have known that they were running a simulation at that point? Yeah, well, that's a good question. But um, thanks. Yeah, I, I, that, that's it. Was definitely a fake out to the audience, and you thought, "Oh, they're about to yes. get destroyed." I guess the show's over. <laughs> no, no, it's not. <laughs> um, what are they going to do for the other ten episodes? Man, that's going right, to be a, it's going right. to be a long stretch. Ten or eleven, I guess it is. Here's a disgusting little detail: uh, the Klingons ate Captain Giorgio. Um, yeah, that's gross. I, you know, it, it is. Um, but on a happier note, it we steps sh- the Klingons up a notch. It does. It does. It, it yeah. makes them even more fierce than they already were. Um, but on a happier note, we have a shout out to the Wright brothers. Elon Musk makes that list and Zephram Cochran. That was a, a cool little detail there. Um, that was, yes. Yeah. So tell me what you got in terms of uh, notes and questions that we should pose to our audience. I really only have questions, not notes. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I do like, I mean, if you want to note, I like the fact that the tardigrade looked more like a tardigrade in this episode because the mm-hmm. last episode, it just looked like a monster. And and there was no telling at the end of the last episode what it actually was. Um, I think I was watching, it, it might've been priority one that said, well, we've heard it referred to before as a tardigrade. And I mm. thought, oh, right. We have heard it referred to as that before, like before Discovery even started, before it started broadcasting or, or streaming or whatever you want to say. Yeah. Um, because looking at that thing last week, it didn't look like anything except for something just really scary. So I, I like the fact that we, when we were actually able to get a better look at it, I mean, it sort of did have more of that look. Mm-hmm. Everything else I've got is questions. Like, what do you make of Vox call for purity versus Laurel's call for assimilation of new technologies um it's interesting that she has said that her mother's side of of the equation uh, were the watcher clan the deceivers the weavers of lies which you know is a weird thing to build a house on mm-hmm. but um i'm wondering about like like his whole thing about about purity and about klingon purity and about not even wanting to have the technology of the other people and yet he ends up needing that to get out of the situation that he was in or agreeing that he needed that um there's, I mean, there, there's a lot that's interesting about Laurel, actually. There's also, you know, standing behind you, I am free to move, able to be your enforcer, defender, and campaigner. Also, if she's standing behind him, he can't see what she's doing. 
it's that's she's going to be a really interesting character. Now I say she's going to be a really interesting character, and I'm afraid that means that she's going to get killed because I think we all agreed last week that Landry was going to be an interesting character to watch this year. <laughs> and then, oops, yeah, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. that uh, so that happened. Um, so we can also talk about her death. Is that like a? I don't know. Is that just showing us that nobody is safe or is that that the bad guys are actually going to get their comeuppance? Because so far on the discovery, I would say she's been the most bad guy character. Mm-hmm. Lorca is definitely more menacing, but she was just like, I don't care what has to happen and I'm going to cut that thing open. And we're going to, you know, I mean, she was, I, I don't care what you think. I don't care how anything feels. I'm just going to, I'm going to do, you know, the dirty work, I guess. And now she's dead. Yeah. Um, that's kind of an interesting thing, but we've probably got other questions from other people too. In fact, I think we have somebody who's wanting to join us. Uh, it sounds like we do. So yeah, let's go ahead and patch through our first guest. Actually, while we're waiting for that, let's go uh-huh. ahead and remind everybody how they can get in touch with us as well. Yeah, uh, There is a link. If you're watching us live, there's a link to the zoom uh, room. Uh, come join us, please. And have your, have yourself heard and your face seen. Or if you just want to have yourself heard, the phone number is 323-522-5641. That phone number again, 323-522-5641. And uh, sorry to throw us early there, but uh, now we have someone on the line. Very good. Okay, let's bring in our first guest then, Bruce. Bruce, are you there with us? I am. Hey, Bruce. How's it going? Hello? Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Excellent. Excellent. I was. I have a question. Um, actually, a couple of questions. One is why has Volk been just sitting there for six months? No other Klingons have come along. He's just been hanging out, starving. And then all of a sudden this guy shows up. I'm, I'm, I feel like I missed something. I watched the episode twice and I didn't get my answer there. And then second question I have is how is it that Saru is first officer for Lorca? I mean, Saru tells Burnham in in the turbo lift that I didn't know you were still here. I, I sure wish the captain would have told me. Bummer for me. And then um, uh, he he lets on later on that he clearly feels like or that Lorca distrusts Saru. Saru distrusts Lorca. It's I, I don't I just don't get the dynamic between those two. And you know maybe that's part of what Discovery's going for. But historically, first officer captain relationships have always been pretty tight. In, in most of the ships, at least, if, you know, the, the main ship, certainly. Well, I'd be willing to guess one thing about uh, Saru. Um, we were wondering last week about the site-to-site transport on the ship. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Which apparently That's had really been done he... in TOS, and, and we totally forgot about it. Yep. But but that's that's how that's basically how we got to have his surprise reaction this week, right? Not saying there was actually any reason to do the site to site transport. The only reason to do the site to site transport is to keep Saru from seeing, um, to keep Saru from seeing Burnham. But again, I don't think that has anything to do with the plot. I think that has to do with you know writing for the audience. So we keep her out of his sight so that next week he can be upset. And going a bit deeper though, it's I mean that. Lorca does things the way Lorca does things. And he doesn't necessarily want anybody second guessing or questioning. I didn't get the sense that he didn't trust. I didn't get the sense that neither one of them trusted the other. It's just that Lorca has his own, you know, rules that he plays by and lives by and all that stuff. I, it's not, it's not a great answer, but I think a lot of it might be just that it's written for the, um, 
to keep the suspense for the viewer. We, what do you we, think, John? Well, we talked a little bit about the difference in command style last time that um, I, I really enjoyed the, the dynamic of Captain Giorgio with um, Burnham and Saru, uh, that, that they all clearly respected each other's uh, professional uh, abilities. Like that, that all made a lot of sense. Um, but Lorca is clearly coming from a completely different place where he would rather play his crew against each other. So maybe having a guy like Saru as his second in command, he, he's almost somebody that Lorca can sort of push around. I mean, uh, Saru, at least in uh, the, the pilot, didn't show that he was really tough command material. He was indecisive, and he expressed to Burnham that he wanted to do better, that he wanted to, uh, to, to be a better officer in the future. Um, so maybe th- this is all sort of convenience for Lorca, and that's why I'm sad that we don't get to see more of um, Landry. You know, I know that this is a controversial character and that there are a lot of people who are glad to see Landry gone, but I feel like Landry is somebody who was very specifically designed as a character that Lorca could absolutely push around and she was willing to do anything for Lorca. So um, we won't get to see that dynamic anymore. But I, I, I think that other than just the dramatic reveal that Saru is there, um, there may be some tactical advantage in terms of the way Lorca commands to have Saru there. Now, the other question that Bruce had is, what have the Klingons been up to for, uh, for six months? Well, that's a really good question. What have they been up to for six months? Um, one of the things that I like about Vok is that he's, from the very beginning, he seems in a little over his head. He's somebody who is of such strong faith and conviction in what it means to be Klingon and what you should be doing as a Klingon, but he has no experience as a warrior, as a commander, uh, as as any of these things. So um, maybe he was just sort of hanging out, hoping things would get better. Maybe, well, we do know that they weren't totally going hungry. We do know that they at least had one meal out of a (laughs) Starfleet captain. Um, but yeah, what, what, what was he doing? Strategizing? Uh, did the other Klingons sort of give up on this? Did they see it as a, as a lost cause, at least Vox version of this? I guess we'll have to find out. Oh, I see. I'm not sure we have to wait to find out, though. Who was it that came back for him this time? Call. Call. I mean, it's quite possible that Call, Call. Was, um, was, was starving him out. I mean, honestly, yeah, what did he say when he came back? If you've got a, if you've got a starving crew, their loyalty is easily won. So, I mean, it's possible because Cole's pretty convinced that as soon as the war is over, the 24 houses go back to being 24 independent houses. They're not going to be united. So, I mean, yeah. it's possible. It was just a tactical move on his part. Just leave him there, wait for him to get too hungry. And then, um, yeah, then there you go. Yeah. All right. Maybe. Well, Bruce, I, I hope that helped a little. Uh, by the way, um, uh, Albert in our chat says, uh, has there ever been a vegan Klingon? And um, I'm guessing no, but uh, but maybe we'll meet the uh, house of vegan Klingons in, uh, uh, in, in a later episode of Discovery. Not really sure. Um, Bruce, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, I hope that you will come back again. We, we need to go to our other guest who is standing by. Uh, we mentioned earlier that Sue from Women at Warp is uh, is going to join us. Sue, are you there? Are you ready for us? 
Women at Warp. Women at Warp. That's another Roddenberry Podcast Network podcast, isn't it? I believe it is. I, I believe that you can find no. them at podcast.roddenberry.com. If you were really looking, if you were, uh, if you were looking <laughs> hard, then you could find it there. I guess you could do that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so Sue was actually at uh, New York Comic Con this week, and she was uh, in the, not in the Discovery panel, like on it, but in the Discovery panel, like, you know, present. Uh, for the discovery panel and there is sue now hey sue how's it going going great guys how are you excellent very glad to have you with us so um yeah ken was just setting it up that you were there for the discovery panel at new york comic-con um give us your uh, sort of nutshell impression of that what uh what, what was the crowd like what what were they into how was the reception you know, to be honest, I think a lot of the crowd there for the New York Comic Con panel was there for the panel after us, because New York Comic Con is a lot like San Diego in that way. You can just sit in a room all day long. But later that same night at the Paley Fest panel, it was a much smaller room. Um, the energy and the excitement was really palpable among the people who were there. And I don't know about everybody else, but for me, this is the first Star Trek I'm watching live as an adult you know, paying mm. my own rent and paying my own bills. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, and I haven't been to a convention for a show that was airing live in quite a long time because I stopped going for a while. So to to be there at both events when the, the cast was announced in such a big panel as well with so many of the producers and so many of the people working on the show, I got a little emotional, which surprised me. Nice. All right. All right. And uh, any uh, any reveals uh, from the either of the panels that uh, they are? Because I, I know that there have been these little bits that keep getting dropped into the press, these spoilers, if you will, about how, oh, Giorgio will be back, which we, we saw right. a little of in this episode. We saw the uh, the hologram. A anything that sort of surprised you was like, oh, wait, I, why are they talking about that now? <laughs> Well, Anthony Rapp, I think, told us a little bit more about the tardigrade than he may have been supposed to. Oh. But that everything he told us aired the following day. Um, so no, not really spoilers anymore, but uh, we did learn about the blueberries. Oh, what, what, what's the deal with the blueberries? Apparently, that is a tribute to Brian Fuller, who would walk around the offices while he was still working on the show, offering people his blueberries. Oh. So that's what that's about. <laughs> Had no idea. Had no idea. <laughs> Neither did Doug Jones at the time. <laughs> oh, that's funny. That was a nice little tribute then. Very cool. So you said that, um, I guess, forgive my curiosity, what was the panel after the Discovery panel? Because that was actually one of the things I was going to ask you about. I know that you can just sort of camp in seats. <laughs> I mean, like, we're, I mean, well, I mean, you've already said that the Bailey Center was more intimate, was more dedicated, I suppose. Yeah. But what was the general reaction to the first panel? I mean, was it really just hurry up and get the cast of The Flash on stage? I mean, what was, <laughs> what was, what was the feeling, I guess, at Comic-Con proper around Discovery? Or is the whole thing just so big that it's hard to say? New York Comic-Con is incredibly large. And there is, in, for most years, there's usually not a lot of Star Trek content. We're lucky if there's one panel and it's a fan panel or a fan meetup. So there was definitely more um, going on this year than there have been in past years. But it, was, it seemed odd and a little bit relegated to the sides. There was a whole Star Trek Discovery store and a place where you could have your photo taken on the bridge. But it was tucked away in 
a room that you wouldn't go to unless you were specifically looking for that. So it wasn't part of the show floor, which was a little bit weird. Um, the, the panel, however, got a prime time slot. It was 3.45 p.m. on Saturday in Madison Square Garden. So it was wow. huge. Wow. But it didn't fill up. They were sending out notifications that, you know, there were still spots available. But at least the people around me, admittedly, I was in the press section, were paying attention and interested. Excellent. All right. Well, hey, uh, tell us uh, just a little bit, you know, obviously with Mission Log, what uh, what we try to talk about here, the themes, morals, uh, messages, ethics of Star Trek. Um, for you and the rest of the crew at Women at Warp, you know, we're all watching this in real time. This is new Star Trek for all of us. Um, what are the, the themes and ideas that are exciting you that are apparent in this new show? I think that Discovery is really starting to settle into its themes in the last couple of episodes. I mean, we've only had four, but uh, especially this last one of um, science versus war of, you know, do you do the right thing? And what is the right thing? Who is the right thing for? Do you harm a creature if it's to save other lives? There are a whole lot of questions about what life to help and you're you're almost asking this crew to make value judgments about the different types of life in the universe, which is a very Star Trek question. And even in this last episode, I kept thinking about Devil in the Dark. It felt very mm-hmm. familiar and very TOS to me when we were we were we like to we don't like to call him Ripper. We like to call him Fluffy when we were talking about Fluffy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You know, yeah, that, that's I funny. That, people online saying. I saw people online saying that they were, you know, Team Ripper, and I, I really wanted to change it to Team Tardigrade right away mm-hmm. because giving him just the, you know, the worst possible name from the worst possible character based exactly. on the one characteristic just seemed like an absolutely terrible thing to do. You know, there are some, I have to admit, there are some concerns among our crew and among our listeners, though, as well, uh, because Discovery is being sold to us on the platform of diversity that there are all these women and all these women of color. We've had four episodes. You've killed two women of color. And a lot Mm -hmm. of people are really upset about that. Um, It's like, it's a tease. Like you're, you're telling us we're going to have these great women of color characters and then they're gone. And we have a lot of, uh, some of us, all of us are very upset. A lot of our listeners are very upset. We've even heard from uh, several people, several, especially women of color that they don't want to watch anymore Mm -hmm. because because the, the message that they're getting from the deaths of Giorgio and Landry are that women of color are expendable. Wow. That's really, that's really interesting. And I feel terrible because what I, what I was reading from it was that no member of the crew is safe. You sort of like um, early Joss Whedon stuff when he would just, you know, kill a member of the crew almost randomly. Mm-hmm. But um, that's really, that's really interesting. And, and both, and we're both interesting and terrible. Um, yeah, I hadn't it hadn't even occurred to me because we lost our first character. It feels like a million years ago, even though, as you mentioned, it's only like four episodes ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fascinating. Well, and, and you know, again, we it, we're so new into it. Um, it'll be interesting to see if other characters get introduced along the way, or what happens to the characters that we have here. But yeah, I, thank you for pointing that out because um, it is an excellent point. Um, any last thoughts here about uh, Discovery before we, uh, we jump to our next caller? 
I'm still very excited and very hopeful for this show. I don't want to make it sound like I'm down on it by any means. And um, I guess team science. <laughs> very good. All right. <laughs> Hashtag team science. Team science. Uh, it'll, it'll go on a yeah. Women at Warp t-shirt for sure. <laughs> yes. We we did, of course, let people know um, right before you came on, we were talking about the fact that uh, Women at Warp is a part of the Roddenberry Podcast Network, and we told people where to find all of the shows on the Roddenberry Podcast Network. But for people who don't know, uh, where can they find you specifically, and where can they find Women at Warp as well? Sure. I specifically can be found on Twitter. I'm Speltor. That's S-P-A-L-T-O-R, because I sing soprano, alto, and tenor. And uh, you can find Women at Warp at womenatwarp.com, on Twitter, on Facebook, under those handles. And um, just since we're talking about discovery on our blog, Andy, one of our co-hosts, is doing recaps every Monday morning. So we are posting some discovery recaps, even though we're not talking about the show on air like Mission Log Live. <laughs> Very cool. Hey, and by the way, it's already happening. Matt in our uh, Facebook chat has already hashtagged at Team Science. So uh, thank you That's for right, that, Matt. Matt. Yeah. <laughs> so good job. All right, Sue, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, hopefully, Anytime, hopefully we'll get to uh, check in with you again as, All right. we, uh, as we discover Discovery. Cheers. Have a great night. Bye-bye. Thank All you right. very much, Sue. We've got, I'll tell you what's uh, fascinating. Do you yeah. know what Women at Warp is doing, John? What they, are they they're doing? They're doing this crazy thing. They're going to wait and actually, you know, see all 15 episodes and then decide about it. Wait, what? You're I kidding know, me. Right? Wait, they're not going to make a judgment say... based solely on a trailer or a couple of episodes. <laughs> they're actually going to watch the whole thing and then decide if they like it. That doesn't sound like Star Trek know. fandom at all, Ken. I know. That that, that kind of uh, really, you know, considered sort of nuanced approach. Mm-hmm. And it's not very 2017. It's just no, not very No, not at all. I would much rather they just yeah. uh, jump into the nearest online forum and start yelling. Uh, that would be really, I think, the way to go. I want to call her back now. They did a really interesting uh, show a few weeks ago about unlikable uh, women. Hmm. About unlikable women characters, not just in Star Trek, but just sort of across the board and how we tend to forgive our unlikable male characters, but unlikable women characters cannot be forgiven. Hmm. Um, boy, does Landry fall in the unlikable category. I wish uh, I wish we had known more about her when they did that episode. But yeah, maybe, maybe tremendous for a flashback, you know, maybe there's yeah. a, a whole <laughs> mini series to be made there about Landry. We don't know. Yeah. I know we have other, I know we have other questions that we want to get to, but do we want to go ahead and do our bit of business first, sir? Yeah. Well, I tell you, we we have somebody who's been waiting on the line here uh, who who I think we should take. Uh, That would be Earl who uh, has been standing by patiently. So if we can go ahead and patch in Earl, we will take his comment slash question. Are you there for us, Earl? I am here. Do you hear me? Excellent. Nice wow. to see you face to face, Earl. Voice, I know that Earl. you've How's been uh, commenting very often on our uh, Facebook page and on our website. So uh, nice to meet you this way. Good to see you and hear you. Um, I guess my comment really so far is I'm loving the show. I was a big fan of Deep Space Nine and Babylon 5 back in the heyday of both of those shows when we were being asked to choose between them. You know, I'd happily watch them both in the same week like I do with Discovery and Orville now. I, I really kind of like that we are giving a voice to some of the characters who signed up for research. They signed up to explore. They signed up to do science. And now all of a sudden they're doing R&D skunk works in wartime. Um, at the same time, I also like that there is sort of a spectrum to their responses. You know, you have Saru, who's just kind of 
you know, going along to get along. And at the other end of the spectrum, you have Stamets, who's going to take his ball and go home. And he <laughs> almost lost me there when he said that. Um, I also find it interesting, and, and I think this has already been noted, that there doesn't seem to be universal loyalty to Captain Lorca. And that seems to go both ways. I mean, Landry's laying on the slab, and he sheds not one tear. I mean, at most, it's inconvenienced him, and he's going to have to send someone else down there to keep an eye on Burnham. But I like the uh, I like the maneuvering going on with the Klingons. We I I think we're setting up some I Claudius stuff there, and I'm much more worried about Laurel than I am worried about Call, because Call's being very upfront and straightforward with his backstabbery. You know, she's maneuvering Vok in front of her, saying, "Oh yes, this guy's the." Uh, you know, he's taking over for our Messiah here. You stand in front of me and take the bullets and I'll just step back here. Yeah. As Ken said, you know, she's standing behind everyone. Well, you know, one thing happens when a Klingon stands behind everyone, they've got a knife in one hand. (laughs) That's a good point. Yeah. I I think I mentioned it here uh, maybe last week or, or yeah, it was probably last week that, um, for as much criticism that I've given to Star Trek Into Darkness, uh, there's a scene in that movie that I love, and that's Scotty quitting. Yeah. Saying that this is not the mission he signed up for, and he's gone. And it's a great moment. And it's so true, I think, to the character, and it's true to the idea and ideal of Star Trek. Um, how will our characters react when they are challenged. Um, so I like that that is a, a theme that has recurred here. Um, and, and yes, I agree with you. You know, Lorca is a fascinating character and he is not cut from the same cloth of any other captain that we've encountered so far. And, and I do think that what he's doing is um, essentially trying to be two or three steps ahead in the chess game at all times. And, and that doesn't just mean strategically with the Klingons, but with his own crew. Yeah. So the, this manipulation that he's doing among them, it, it's almost like you can't entirely fairly judge the rest of his crew because of what they have been put through by him. Well, and also there's that thing, you know, in the attack at the end where he's, it's like he's trying to conduct the orchestra there. And it's like, dude, just, end it you know we've got millions of people waiting down there to be saved and you know and you're sitting here you know maestro i i I just kind of that's another one of those things too that i wonder if that was written for the screen or written for the viewer because he says we're going to send the klingons a message that they're not going to forget but then they all get destroyed so the message isn't going to get back to them anyway i mean it's it's a little bit um it's a little bit um just sort of showing us something really dramatic that doesn't necessarily seem like it's going to have any, uh, any end universe consequence, except when all the people come running out as bits of star, uh, as starship are falling to the ground. <laughs> didn't seem like the best idea. Yeah, take an umbrella. Yeah. Earl, let, let me ask you a question. So I, I know that you know your Trek because I, I read your comments all the time. And um, I, I'm curious that, you know, Discovery doesn't look or feel like other Star Trek that we've seen so far. Um, what is it in this show that resonates with you as being, quote unquote, Star Trek? I think it's that we are 
you know, like I said, we're giving a voice to, you know, a whole spectrum of opinions here. And it has been noted as far back as the beginning of the second episode when Burnham's talking to the, uh, you know, the injured crewman on the Shenzhou. And, you know, he says, you know, we're supposed to be explorers. He's almost in tears about it. And then he gets blown away. You know, I like that we are still making a point that Starfleet, Starfleet is an exploratory, you know, it's on an exploratory mission and this isn't them and they've got to make the adjustment at the same time. seems like Lorca's made the adjustment really easily. Like this is what he's been wanting to do the whole time. But more than that, it's about the character relationships. You know, Saru is extremely fascinating. Um, I like the fact that they finally identified his threat ganglia because I had been calling them something unrepeatable. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, the interplay between him and Burnham is fascinating. I almost wish, you know, if uh, if Jason Isaacs, who's doing a fantastic job, it's not that I want to get rid of him. If he winds up doing something else and, you know, they can't do season two as they planned, I would totally be on board with them rewinding it to the Shenzhou and showing us how Georgiou and burnham and seru got to be the tight team that they were because in those first two episodes i was really kind of seeing a kirk spock mccoy thing hmm. and you know it's the characters that keep me on board you know lork has got me hooked because i'm trying to figure out if he's really mad as a box of frogs or if he's you know if he actually is playing four-dimensional chess and winning which yeah. i'm i'm not really picking up on on that being the end game for his character. But uh, yes, yeah, the characters that keep me on board is the fact that it leaves you with something to think about. And, you know, this latest episode to me was the most trekish episode we've had so far of discovery. And so I'm, I'm very pleased with it. You know, as far as the differences in uniforms and the tech on the bridge and so on, it, you know, I'm sure that, uh, when the makers of deep space nine put that set together and they had what 48, uh, you know, four or three CRT video monitors in there. I'm sure they didn't mean for that to read as a bunch of four or three aspect ratio. <laughs> you know, I'm sure they meant that to read as high tech, but that was just the most affordable way to show it. So, you know, in my mind, we are, we're at a point in production technology and production techniques where they can finally make it look like the way it's supposed to. Mm -hmm. And now I know the biggest gulf in visuals is between discovery and the original series. I'm not really sure what to say about that, except that the visuals are a means to the end of telling the story and the story and the characters are what I'm here for. Yeah. Excellent. Thanks, man. Uh, really nice to be able to chat with you. And uh, I hope you join us again for uh, a future Mission Log Live. Thank you so much, Earl. Take care. Thank you, Earl, very much. Thank hey, really quickly, before we do our bit of business, there was a response to uh, something that Earl kind of, what Earl was kind of saying. Um, mm -hmm. It does hurt every time a character, this is Thomas in our uh, Facebook chat. It does hurt every time a character kind of states that we signed up uh, to discover new life. And as of now, uh, the show is about war kind of feels like this is rubbing our face in the fact that this isn't what we want uh, but i truly think it's going to turn around at some point possibly soon so says keith um my hope is that season two does that and hmm. i don't 
I'm not, I'm not saying season one's not going to do it. I don't know, except I think we were told that it was going to be all Klingon war. And we know there are only 15 episodes in the season. I can't imagine wrapping up the Klingon war in the next three yeah, <laughs> or right. four, right? right? Which you would have to do if you were going to do anything but this, this season. That said, um, we've talked before about the possibility that you get so that your overarching story or that your story arc is going to be the Klingon war. That doesn't mean that we can't have an episode where we bumble into a godlike alien who, you know, teaches us something else about humanity or something like that. But honestly, I think season one is probably going to be the war story. And that's completely guessing. I, I have, I know nothing. I have no insight, anything. It just seems like everything that we've heard about is it's going to be Klingon war. And so I think I'm sort of, settled into that for the first season whether that's necessarily the star trek i would want uh, it feels like the star trek that we have for season one of discovery yep all right well let's do a little bit of business ken because we have to yes. but we like to that's the more important thing here we like to talk about <laughs> the discovery collection from our friends at eagle moss uh eaglemoss.com slash discovery starships so uh this episode is brought to you by them by our friends and uh you can reserve the uss shinju today for only nine dollars and 95 cents by visiting eaglemoss.com slash discovery starships so here's the thing. You know the deal with Eagle Moss. They are the officially licensed Starships collection, officially licensed by CBS. Um, they have all the new ship designs from Star Trek Discovery, and each one has been looked at extensively for reference, uh, and they have been reproduced under the supervision of Star Trek expert Ben Robinson for accuracy and detail. And if you don't know who Ben is, you haven't been to a convention where Eagle Moss is represented. Ben is... He truly is one of those the, those few, those higher echelon of true Star Trek experts. The man knows more about Star Trek and Star Trek ships than, well, just about anybody that I've met. So a guy really knows his stuff, and um, he, he is truly an asset to this collection for Eagle Moss. Now, we've talked for a long time about the tiny little starships. Uh, this is not a tiny little starship. This is uh, an eight-inch ship. So it's kind of the bigger ones, if you've ever taken a look at any of the Eagle Moss stuff that they have. And this is the very first ship from Discovery. Uh, all the new ships in this series are, as I say, in the larger scale. But you know, they still, they still use that specially formulated metallic resin. They're still hand-painted with reference to the actual models or, well, CG models that they use in the show. Uh, they still come with the stand, so it's not just laying around on your desk. And one of my favorite things, they still come with the magazine that tells you not only about how the ship that you're holding in your hand was designed, but then also how the ship uh, that was on screen was designed. And then they give you all the in-universe stuff, too. Um, that's, that is uh, almost as much fun as having the ship, I think. And uh, to answer a listener question, Meredith, no, I'm not sure if your cat would knock these over, but then I don't know your cat. Um, so the thing about these Discovery Starships, they, they will have very limited quantities and they will be releasing in early 2018. So right now is the time to guarantee your subscription by reserving your first ship, the USS Shenzhou NCC-1227 for only $9.95 with free shipping. The ship itself will be sent to you on or before January 31st, 2018. New models will then ship monthly and will be delivered directly to your door. Subscribers also enjoy an exclusive 20% discount on every Starship in the series. 
along with free shipping. And of course, you may cancel your subscription at any time. But then there's so much fun you won't discover. Mm, for details on the I entire collection. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I, yeah. I try. I try. Uh, for details on the entire collection and to reserve your place among the first to subscribe, uh, visit eaglemoss.com slash discovery starships. That address one last time, eaglemoss.com slash discovery starships. And we do thank the good people at Eagle Moss uh, for sponsoring this week's Mission Log Live. You had a question that you wanted to go to, sir, or do we have somebody lined up? I don't remember. I'm sorry. Uh, I, I want to take a, a text question here. Um, we actually have a comment and a, uh, and a question from Christopher Huff, who follows us on Facebook. Christopher says, well, as a comment, um, I thought Ripper being plugged into the Spore Drive was a little on the nose and obvious. I guessed it early on when they said it was an herbivore. Um, yeah, okay. I, I, I guess we knew that maybe something was going to be tied in, but not exactly how. And, and even then, to me, I, I kind of feel like uh, so many people have drawn the parallel to Devil in the Dark, um, that that really resonated with me, the, the point they were trying to make with that, uh, with that character. And, and still more to come, because we've only sort of just introduced what happens there. We haven't actually resolved what happens there. Um, and then this is Christopher's question. He says, what did Captain Giorgio's will or bequeathment give to Michael? I just want to ask that so you'll be sure to mention it because there's no audio narration for the blind and the programming. And I just know that she got something. And I'm sure you go over most every other question I have, like what the Klingons are doing and other stuff. But that one might slip by. So I thought I'd reinforce it. Um, well, easy question to answer. Uh, yes, it is a telescope. In the pilot episode, we saw a telescope in Captain Giorgio's ready room. And then, uh, of course, the, the Shinju was badly, badly damaged. And I think we even saw that damaged, um, I think we saw that damaged telescope at one point in there, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I don't remember seeing the damaged telescope, but she actually used it. And, you know, that's sort of one of those. Mm -hmm. It's probably a point that we missed in the first episode because all of their sensors weren't working because the Klingons had uh, um, that field up basically so that they couldn't see his ship. Yeah. And so, um, so Giorgio and um, Burnham went into um, Giorgio's ready room, I guess, and actually pointed the telescope out uh, out the window, and that's how they were able to see that, which certainly could. I mean, there are all sorts of things you could take from that, look at things in a different way to try to understand them better. Don't be so reliant on the things the, the things that you know. Try some other way to, to sort of investigate. Mm -hmm. But then the other big deal is that was, a, that was an heirloom that was passed down from generation to generation in Giorgio's uh, family. And, of course, she passed it to Michael that made the mention of it you know, being like her own daughter, but yeah, it was a, uh, it was a physical, it was a physical old timey telescope was what, uh, was what got passed to her there. By the way, speaking of captains and their props, uh, somebody did ask what was the deal with Lorca and the uh, fortune cookies, which they did explain in the last episode, which is that his family business, uh, he said a hundred years ago. So we, we think around 2050 something was making fortune cookies and um, somebody else in, in a different question thread had asked why that was or why that would be. And I, I always like to point out that fortune cookies were invented 
in California. So the traditional Chinese fortune cookie were invented in California. <laughs> and it was some years later, I think in the maybe the 70s or maybe 60s that they made their way to China and uh, were being sold as genuine American fortune cookies. So, um, hey, hey, um, foodie dude, I have yeah. a question for you. <laughs> sure, actually. sure. What was he eating? Oh, Oh, I thought yeah. it might have been Gach, honestly. I thought he might have been yeah. eating Gach, which I don't think he was, except it looked like it had tentacles. And then when we went back onto Takuvma's ship later, it looked like the Klingons were eating tentacles. I wonder if there was a bit of a, like, he's trying to get inside the mind of the enemy, or if we're supposed to look at them and say, wow, is there a real difference between the guys that we're seeing as the good guys and the guys that we're theoretically seeing as bad guys? Or are they just, you know, two sets of people operating, you know, in similar ways, just on opposite sides of the cause or issue? Yes. <laughs> All of the it above. was Gach? Yeah, no, I, I, I thought, yeah, because we, we did get a good look at it. And I tried to pause and go back and, and uh, pick apart. Much harder to do there. with streaming than it is with uh, DVD. Much harder to pause at just the right moment on streaming. Yes. Yeah. But it, I, I thought, you know, again, going back to uh, Captain Picard's sashimi, I just thought he had a nice spread of some seafood. Maybe there's a tentacle <laughs> involved, which I'm certainly not opposed to. Um, so maybe that's what he was getting into. But yes, it paralleled very nicely what the Klingons were eating when they were having their feast, courtesy of call, call, call. Yes. Let's make sure we say that yes. right. Um, so I believe before we go to another text question, we have a video submission from Heather. So if we can cue that up, then I think we'll go ahead and hear what she has to say. Hi, Mission Log. This is Heather Barker, hailing from the Shore Leave and Disco Podcasts over on the Tricorder Transmissions Network. And this is my buddy Blizzy, who is not a replicated puppy. We would like to know why you thought Michael Burnham didn't act to save the tardigrade in the episode, despite the fact that she's been incredibly impulsive in the past. Perfect. That was just enough time for me to cough. So uh, thank you for playing that message. So Heather asked, <laughs> why do we think that Burnham didn't act to save the tardigrade when she has acted so impulsively before? Um, my gut reaction to that is that Burnham has been broken down. We're meeting Burnham after six months of the worst thing that could possibly happen to her. So everything that was revealed in the pilot episodes, uh, the, the prologue is this incredibly gifted person who has amazing opportunities, who's raised on Vulcan and we're seeing her at the absolute height of her career. And then she makes a terrible decision, which again, is still debatable whether or not she made the right decision. Um, and this absolutely destroyed everything that she had built her identity upon. So when we meet her again, um, yes, Ken, you mentioned last week that, that she says that she will live and die by that code, by that set of ethics and principles that she learned from Starfleet. But mm -hmm. we're seeing somebody who has repeatedly said, I don't want any part of this. I, I, I'm not a part of this war. And Lorca's kind of prodding her. Well, what, what is it? It's just self-punishment. And she, is, she can't handle the reality of what's happening, um, arguably because of her action uh, or the, the inaction that occurred around it. So I think we're seeing a person who has not found her footing yet. Um, 
she's you're the one who's not. You're, mm-hmm. Well, you're also seeing a person, forgive me for interrupting, you're also seeing a person though who does not lightly nor easily break the rules. I mean, she only did what she did, unless you want to count the fact that she actually set foot on the Klingon ship when she had said she was only going to fly by it. She only The only rule that she broke, she broke because she was trying to save the lives of her crew. She was trying to save the lives of her captain. I I, I'm, I don't think she's like um, Topper Harley is not the character. Who's the character from uh, from uh, uh, from Top Gun? Topper Harley was the was the Charlie Sheen character. Is it a hot hot shots? Shot. <laughs> right, she's yeah. not Topper Harley. I mean, she actually yeah. does play by the rules the whole time. And so, I mean, the other thing is we. It's obvious that she was feeling a bit of pain from what was happening with the tardigrade because the tardigrade was feeling pain as well. They lingered on her a lot. I really feel like, again, this is one of those things that was being telegraphed to the audience. Like, oh, see, Michael is not who you thought she was. She actually cares. She does have sentiment. She does have feeling. Um, and as John pointed out, and technically this is the third episode with the Tardigrade, but uh, no, second, excuse me, the second episode of the Tardigrade, but only the first one where we've actually dealt with it. I can't imagine, you know, with the amount of camera time that we spent with her feeling bad about what was happening to the thing, I can't imagine that it's going to be like, oh, well, but it's a part, so we're going to keep using it. It feels like something something else has to happen. There. Well, and, and look, Michael is in a similar situation than she was before, where, as one of our listeners here is pointing out on uh, Facebook, uh, Paul says, the colonists were in danger. You know, this is a very specific thing. And, and Lorca was going to stop at nothing to swoop in and protect the colonists because that is the mission. And the mission means everything to a guy like Lorca. Um, and, and again, argu- arguably, that is absolutely correct, that, that that is the mission to go save those innocent lives. So would Burnham have even been in an ethically correct place to say, oh, no, we can't do that. We can't use this technology to go save the people that we're supposed to go save. Um, there's a little bit of an unknown factor going on with the tardigrade at that point. But um, I, I still feel like it's a, it's a tricky thing to answer with any uh, true certainty. One other thing really quickly, um, we're taking much longer to tell morality tales in Discovery than we did in Star Trek. Remember in TOS, we did not know in Devil in the Dark for the first half of the episode, maybe from the first three quarters of the episode, what to do with the Horda or about the Horda. It took a long time for us to figure out that it was, you know, feeling pain and that we should treat it differently than we were. Um this is a different kind of storytelling. That's what everybody keeps talking about. It's a different kind of storytelling. So we're going to take three episodes to say, Hey, this thing that we probably thought was morally wrong in the first episode and the second episode, we're really going to deal with the fact that it's morally wrong. And then the third episode, we're going to fix it. I mean, at least that seems to be the way things are going with this. It used to be that you told one of those stories in 30 or 45 minutes. And now you tell those stories in three to five episodes. Mm -hmm. It seems. Yeah. And and I like that they're doing that. Yeah. We've got one more caller that we want to get to, but I want to remind everybody, as soon as we're done here, stay on Facebook, go to facebook.com slash priority one podcast. I believe it is. Oh, I feel terrible. Search Facebook for priority one because they're doing their show right after our show. Uh, they're also going to be talking about discovery. They do lots of different kinds of Star Trek news. And I know that they would love to have you join them. So please do that when we're done here. In the meantime, though, we have another we have another call caller. We have another phone caller. All right. It's, uh, it's Liam. That's right. Hey, Liam. Hey, Liam. How's it going? 
I'm good. I'm actually on a PC without a video. Uh, that's, nice. that's quite all right. <laughs> that's quite all right. What's on your mind tonight? Well, the the thing that interests me about uh, Burnham's actions is that she got her idea from Sarek, and this hasn't been brought up in any form in the show yet. She didn't try to explain it to any of her uh, colleagues or her captain or, like, what's going on here? Well, she didn't actually, if memory serves, she did explain it to Giorgio, but it was in the middle of, I mean, it was in the middle of, um, well, it was in the middle of, of them arguing about whether or not they should actually fire first. I think we talked about it in our first episode, the fact that, I mean, yeah, we still don't know who was right in that situation. Uh, Giorgio said, we don't fire first, which is absolutely correct. And Burnham said, we have to fire first, otherwise war is coming. And she seems to have been absolutely correct as well. And, you know, the, the cool thing is that gives us something big to wrestle with. The drag is um, we never do get a clear answer about that. And it doesn't seem like we're ever going to. But I guess it gives us something to do from now on. It seems like something she might have brought up with the rest of Starfleet or the Vulcans after the fact. Hmm. Yeah, well, and I guess the real question is, uh, where's Captain Giorgio when you need to ask her? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Resting comfortably in the belly of a Klingon. Apparently oh, the ouch. Liam, ouch. thank you very much for thank you very much for calling in, sir. We, do, we really do appreciate it. And please call back again. Well, thank you. It was fun. All right. Well, I think that about wraps it up. We do have some uh, some other questions that people have submitted to us via text. And I, and I see that the chat room here on Facebook is really active, which is nice. Uh, Chris is sort of reiterating something that uh, that I was getting at earlier. It says, I like the ambiguity of not knowing who was right in that scenario. Yeah. And I think they're kind of exploring a similar thread with the Klingons. Um, the, the Klingons are acting on motivations that we are meant to to try to understand, even if we don't agree with. Um, so this is a complex, different kind of Star Trek where you don't just have mustache twirling villains that you can say, well, they're wrong. We're right. End of the show. Um Matthew says the writers should get credit for the tardigrade. The water bear has become iconic for its robust survival abilities. It's a great metaphor for an indestructible monster. Yeah, um, this is a big old water bear. But uh, yeah, and they correct me if I'm wrong, Ken. I think they stopped just short of saying that it is a tardigrade. They just said that it was very closely related, or it was something like a tardigrade. About the only thing that we got from that was when Burnham said it was microscopic and Landry said microscopic. And she's like, okay, well, this one's bigger. Yeah. That's pretty much it. So I think, I mean, they almost seem to be calling it a tardigrade, but I guess he'll always be referred to Landry. (laughs) Oh, I guess we can't ask Landry that question either. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and just to remind everybody that, yes, we we thank you very much for your calls. um, And please, if you can't get in, do submit your videos to us. You can email them to us, missionlog at roddenberry.com. You can drop them in the uh, Facebook uh, direct messages to us. We'll grab those over the weekend and then uh, be able to address those on our show next week. So um, thank you. Thank you again for everyone. And uh, I guess that just leaves us with the credits. Ken, if you would. Mission Log Live is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Technical production on Mission Log Live by Infinity Networks producer, Brandon Bradley. 
Be sure to visit podcast.roddenberry.com for the latest from the Roddenberry Podcast Network, including not just Mission Log, but also Women at Warp and Priority One. And thanks again to Sue Kissenweather for joining us from Women at Warp. Do check out their show and check out all the shows, actually, podcast.roddenberry.com. And we would again like to thank Eagle Moss and the official Star Trek Starships collection for sponsoring this show. Uh, check out their find offerings, especially their Discovery Starships at, you guessed it, eaglemoss.com slash Discovery Starships. Take care, everybody, and we will see you in a week, 7 o'clock Pacific, 10 p.m. Eastern at facebook.com slash Mission Log Pod. Mm-hmm.